If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Mary Todd Lincoln. We finished the last episode learning that Mary's family hated Abraham Lincoln. Now you're going to learn what he thought about them. It's funny. How come your family didn't ever figure out the kind of person that he was? Because he was certainly a good man. What did your oh, family not like about him? Did he, he didn't treat you bad, did he? Oh, no, no, not at all. Mr. Lincoln was poor. In fact, he was very much in debt when I met him. He was not from a distinguished family at all, and we were. We were the Todds. In fact, Mr. Lincoln, he, he made a joke one time, which at the time I did not think was funny, that for God, one D was enough, but not for the Todds. They had to have two. Yeah. So there was that in the, the way our families were. I was highly educated. He was not. Mr. Lincoln did not know the proper etiquette. He would go to our front door wearing his slippers and answer the door even. So th- there was a lot of difference in our background. They did not like this. They thought that I should marry one of my other beaux. Um, there was John Breckenridge, who was a distant cousin. He ran as the Southern Democratic candidate for president in the election of 1860. He also served as a general during the Civil War for the South. And then there was uh, my dear friend Stephen, Stephen Douglas. I'm sure you've heard of him. I have. He was the beau that my family wanted me to marry. He defeated Mr. Lincoln in the senatorial race there from the state of Illinois, but then he ran against him also as the Northern Democratic candidate in the election of 1860 for president. So of the four candidates for president that year, three had been my beaux at one time. When I was a young girl, I told people that when I grew up, I was going to live in the executive mansion, and they all laughed at me. They thought I was putting on airs. <laughs> but in Mr. Lincoln, I saw something. I believed in him when others did not believe in him. I saw his honesty. I saw his drawing power, his charisma, and his ambition, an ambition I shared. And I encouraged him in that. As I told you, I knew politics, so I was able to help him out in that way. I, I wrote to my friends, and I called him my diamond, my, my diamond in the rough. And I told them to polish a stone such as that would be the task of a lifetime. But what mm-hmm. joy to see the beauty and the brilliance shine out more clearly each day. And it has. It was a joy being married to Mr. Lincoln. Because we connected on so many other levels besides our backgrounds of education and things where we did not agree or did not have an alignment. But yes, my family, my family wanted me to marry Stephen. They thought he was a much better match for me than Mr. Lincoln. Do you think that this is an opposites attract type situation? Physically, the two of you could not look more different. I mean, he's six foot four, you're five foot two, right? Thereabouts, yes. I've shrunk some over the years. <laughs> we all shrink a little bit over the years. But he comes from nothing. His family didn't own slaves, I'm guessing. No. And no, your family. Very much opposed. Yeah, and your family is for that and has many slaves, even oh, though you treat them. Now, I, I take exception with that. Please. As time went along, my family was very divided by the issue of slavery. So we were, we were not in agreement. We were a family very much divided, as the whole country was divided by this. Of my full siblings, there was only one, George, who was not for the North. Oh. And he was uh, not very accepted in our family. George was very disagreeable personality. He served as a surgeon for the South, for the Confederacy. We considered him the black sheep of the family, I guess you'd say. And then my half-sister, Margaret, 
she was also for the union. Yes, so we were, we were very divided on this issue. It was not black and white or, or even gray. I mean, it was, it was, it was not equal. It was uh, some were for, some were against. And, of course, my, my youngest half-sister, Emily, we called her little sister, she was married to Benjamin Helm, who died serving the Confederacy, and she blamed, <laughs> she blamed Mr. Lincoln on her husband's death. And it, it, it was a death that did not need to happen because as the war was beginning, Mr. Lincoln and I invited Emily and Benjamin to the executive mansion. And Mr. Lincoln offered him a, a position where he would be a paymaster. He would be nowhere near the fighting serving for the union. But he and he fired. didn't take it. He did not. He that had to be really fighting. challenging for him. To know that he was sending people to the front lines. But then when you look at this person and he's offering them a way out. And then you look at Robert and he's actually forcing Robert not to be on the front lines. It had to be difficult to say that these people can go fight and die. But these people close to me, I I can't allow that. Because he had to play both sides of that, didn't he? Oh, my husband. He aged before my eyes. He had so much of a burden on his heart. He did everything possible for the soldiers that were in the Union Army that were up for their election of duty or for, for desertion to find some excuse that they not have to die for this error in judgment. He hated it. He hated it very much to see men die. But he knew that there had to be this fight. It had to be waged to finally end this curse of slavery upon our land. As he said in his speeches, our country could not be divided. It could not be part slavery and part free. It had to be one or the other, all or nothing. And he was determined that those slaves would be free. They were human beings just like the rest of us. Just because their skin was a different color did not mean they should be enslaved. Are, are black people as intelligent as white people? Some are. I do believe that some are, yes. Not all, but there was a Negro woman who was a teacher, and I invited her into the executive mansion to tea. She came to the front door, and Ma, they turned her away. They told her she had to go around to the back entrance. And when I learned of it, I was very angry and very upset that she should be treated as such. When she came in, I made a point of shaking her hand in front of my guest. And Sam and Chase's daughter, she said of me, Mrs. Lincoln is making too much of the Negro. (laughs) Yes, that's what she said. I think that's extraordinary that you went out of your way to shake her hand so that people would understand this is a human being and you're going to treat her as such. Throughout your life, even though you know a lot of people know about the insanity trial and the sanitarium and some of the, the things that maybe are a little more difficult to explain, throughout your life, you did some extraordinary things. My understanding is that you went out of your way to visit wounded soldiers and you sent flowers to their family and... Can you tell me a little bit about some of that part of your life? Well, I didn't make it very public because I, well, my name was in the newspaper for all the wrong reasons, and I did not trust the newspaper reporters. I figured they would twist whatever I did. But I wanted to help in some way. So I would go in and I would read to the soldiers. I would write letters home for them. There were soldiers who had no limbs, or they had been blinded, and so I would write to the loved ones for them and and read the letters from them. I felt this was my duty. It was not easy for me to do because the sights I saw there, the smells I smelled, and the things I heard. Oh, my. But I did it. There were surgeons that were chopping off limbs sawing them off, and the piles were there with the stench from them and the wounds, and yes, it did not smell good at all. There were flies and 
I would take to them food from the executive mansion and, and spirits, wines, and things that they could be used on their wounds to help heal them or to use them for the, the pain that they were going through and oranges to prevent scurvy. I would raise funds also so that they would have better food. So, yes, I went into them. In fact, I, I, they honored me so by naming the one of these hospitals for the soldiers, Camp Mary Lincoln. <laughs> that touched my heart that they would do this for me. And then afterwards, sometimes I would take Caddy with me or, or Mr. Lincoln, and, and we would then go from there to visit these the camps that I told you about for the black, the, 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 the Negroes who had led from the South, the contrabands, they were considered contraband of war, and mm-hmm. they would set up their own living areas and camps, and I would go in with them, and Mr. Lincoln and I would stand alongside of them singing those songs. And so, yes, I had a number of in-reactions with them, and Mr. Frederick Douglass was another one. When he came to one of the, the open houses as we had there, as I told you, in the White House when we would have the, the balls or the dinner parties or the receptions, we call them levies. Mr. Douglas came and, and he, like this teacher, was not going to be allowed to come in at all rather than being told to go to the other door. And Mr. Lincoln found out about it. So, of course, he made sure that Mr. Douglas came in and they had a time of visiting there. And and he left, and, and and I did. I was not aware that he was there at the time. I was very upset that I did not get to meet him and shake his hand. Now, after Mr. Lincoln's death, then I gave Mr. Douglas Mr. Lincoln's favorite walking step. That stick. That's how highly I I felt of him. So you did you never meet him in person then? Oh, I did, yes. In fact, he, he corresponded with me, thanking me for that walking stick. But it, it was not at that first meeting between Mr. Lincoln and him in public. I did not meet him at that time. I see. Well, I bet you, I'll bet you he never lost that walking stick. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I bet he did not. Frederick Douglass seems like a, a very interesting person. What was your impression of him? Well, as you said, uh, you asked me if I thought any Negroes were intelligent. He was definitely intelligent. The man was such a great orator and speaker and writer. So he definitely had great intelligence. Yeah. As I'm listening to you, I am learning so much about your personality, and I'm trying to figure out who you are. And I think I've, I've solved one piece of the puzzle. Because there's a point in your life where and maybe your whole life, you're a politician. And there is the ambassador to the, I forget the name of the White House, the uh, executive mansion. Executive mansion. Yes. So there's the person that runs the executive mansion. And there are all these different qualities in your personality. Uh, You're the educated, uh, very educated woman that comes from a wealthy family. And yet, as I listen to you talk about three specific things, I wonder if I'm if I'm close to hitting this on the head. When you talked about slaves in your home, in your father's home, you said that you treated them like children and they needed to be with you and you protected them. And then when you talked about the soldiers, you went back to that motherly instinct and talked about how important it was for you to care for them and make them feel loved. And then, of course, as you have had this tragedy in your life, where you know your your children died so young, or at least three of them, and then one of them more or less abandons you, or he doesn't abandon you, but he you know he doesn't he does something that you don't don't understand. What Robert did with the insanity trial, all of these instincts are motherly instincts, and I wonder if maybe that is at your core that you're the mother first. Am I on the right track? Yes, absolutely. That is my. <laughs> My greatest role in life was as a mother and a wife. My children were my world after my husband. And to lose them has been the hardest, hardest thing I ever had to endure. I loved my children dearly. To lose little Eddie when he was only three years old, where I had hardly got to know him. And then 
our dear Willie, who was the light of our life. We, we lost him in the executive mansion. He was 11. He was such a bright child. He'd write poetry and make up stories. He'd memorize the timetables of all the trains. He could call out the stops all across the United States. Mr. Lincoln said he was too good for this world. You've yeah. mentioned Willie several times. He was the one that was the most like Mr. Lincoln. Is that right? Well, I, I'm wondering yeah. if you've mentioned Willie so many times. I mean, it sounds like he's the one where after Willie passed away, you were in a bed for three weeks, I think is what you'd said. And is the reason that, I mean, any child's death is going to affect you. I mean, there's just no way to measure that. But is it because he was older? He was 12 years old. You had time to get to know him where that hit you so hard? Uh, oh, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. But little Eddie's life was just as precious as my Willie's. And so was Tad. Tad was my mainstay after Willie's death. He became my right hand. I grieved greatly when he died, too. He was 18, so I'd, I had really begot to know him. He traveled with me to Europe, and, and I oversaw his uh, education there as he was put into schools. Because when, when Mr. Lincoln died, Caddy didn't even know his letters. He could barely speak, that he could, people could understand him. So he had to have special surgery and, and, and treatment and, and, and education. So when we were in Germany and in England, he had education there before we returned to the United States and he passed away. Oh, goodness. Nobody should have to deal with that. That's terrible. Well, let me, let me go back to something else. I'm going to go back in time a little bit. When This is actually the first question I intended on asking you. I never got to the first question. When you and Mr. Lincoln were together and you were married and he was not the president, he was a lawyer in Springfield, it seemed to me like you guys were worked together on the decisions and you were an advisor and and when he won the presidency, I read that he came to you and said, we won. And it was all we, we, we. But that's my French, by the way. When, when he was elected, though, and all of a sudden you guys are, you're both in the executive mansion, did that change? Because now he's got generals and people and all these advisors around him and he didn't lean on you as much? Or did that stay the same? You have done your research well. Yes, except for you, you said something about you guys, and I believe guys means men. It, it was he and I as a, as a couple when he said we are elected. Yes, when he found out that he had won, that is what he said because he knew that I was part of this too. It was us together. And then in the early years, as he was coming up through the ranks, serving in the Illinois legislature in the United States, in the Congress, and, and running for office. I was there to advise him, as I told you. But once he became the president, and he had this cabinet, these vipers who were plotting against him the whole time, especially Sam and Chase, he started listening to them more than to me. And I had to go behind his back to try to get people to appeal to him to do certain things that I wanted done. He and I were not as one, at least in our political views, although he, we still loved each other very much. And I don't mean in our political views or outlook. I just mean in as far as my influence on his politics goes. Yes, you are correct in that yep. he listened to his advisors and not me at that point in time. They were saying that I was a political liability because of my personality. <laughs> I'm sure you loved that. Yeah. That, is, that had to be terribly said, frustrating for you because here you are, an educated a, person with a political mind, and all of a sudden, it's, that was just shut off. You, you, you had no influence, is that correct? I had some, but not much. Not much at all compared to what I had had before. And as I, I was trying to say, 
the things the newspapers wrote about me were such lies. They were so distorted that I did not trust them. And I could not have been more traduced had I committed murder. That is how vile the things were that they wrote about me. Why were they after you? I was not the way a woman should be. A woman's name should only appear in the newspaper three times, according to them, when she was born, when she was married, and when she died. My name was in the newspaper much more than that, and I spoke out. I spoke my mind. That is why they did not like me. That makes sense. I was not accepted among the society in Washington when I came. They considered me to be a Westerner. Someone from the frontier, they didn't think I knew how to hold a tea party or a soiree of any sort. So the women of the Society of Washington came to me to tell me how I should run the White House, how I should do things. And I told them I already knew all these social things, and they were very taken aback. Now, many of them were Confederate sympathizers as well. So, of course, Miss Chase, Simon Chase's daughter, she, she would hold dinner parties the same night I was having them to try to make people not attend my event. Oh, that's not good. Do, do you think that uh, your husband was better at playing this political game than you were? Well, I guess looking back over things from now, from our point of view as we are here in 1876, my husband was very politically astute. I did not agree with him at the time on many of his decisions. He was very prescient. He was very intelligent. He made very wise decisions. Of his advisors, which one was the one that you trusted the least? Oh, I think you already know that. I actually don't. Oh, well, I've mentioned his name several times as the snake. <laughs> he was uh, serving as the Secretary of the Treasury, and the whole time he was serving, he was plotting behind Mr. Lincoln's back how he would become the next president. Who are we talking about? Sam and Chase, Secretary of Treasury. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I think there was a, I, I heard a noise. Okay, so he was always plotting to become the next president. He was, absolutely. Yes, was he, he? Uh, as I told you, he was, yes, very treacherous. Oh, why, why, would, why would Mr. Lincoln put somebody so dishonest in charge of the money? Very good question. I guess he thought he was the best man for that position. He was one of those who ran against Mr. Lincoln for the Republican ticket. In fact, several people in the cabinet were also trying to be the candidate for the Republican Party. And he, he wanted to keep these men on his cabinet, which he did. He had many times where he became infuriated with Mr. Chase. And Mr. Chase tended his resignation several times as well, and the first few, Mr. Lincoln did not accept him. But finally, he realized, yep, it's time for him to go. <laughs> he He'd had enough. Much to the astonishment of Mr. Chase. <laughs> so he was out. But then, do you know how Mr. Lincoln eventually rewarded him? How he treated him? What? He became his chief justice of the Supreme Court. Mr. Lincoln appointed him in that position. I could not understand why he would put someone in it that had done all these things to him. And he said, well, he was the best man for the job. That's why he put him in there. He held no grudge against him at all. Did he do a good job? Well, that's for history to decide. Yeah, I suppose you're right. I, I mean, maybe he did. I mean, one thing about Mr. Lincoln is that he found a way to get the best out of a lot of people. Yes, he did. Even me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and, and a lot of us in the future too. I mean, it, in this time, we call him we call him Honest Abe for a reason. <laughs> yes, my husband was almost a monomaniac when it came to honesty. <laughs> Let's talk about all the money that was spent when you were the uh, first lady, because my understanding that you have a little bit of that you enjoy shopping maybe a little too much. Is, is that a good way to put that? 
at one time in my life. I would not say that is the present case. My understanding is that you racked up some pretty hefty bills that had to be paid. And that created... Uh, do we really a, need to talk about this? Well, we, we don't need to talk about it. And I, well, the one thing I don't want to do is I, I don't want to offend you. That is for sure. As I've been talking to you, though, there's a lot of thoughts that I had about your life from things that I've read that have cleared up some of these issues. The impression that I have of you now is totally different than when we started talking. I, as I mentioned, I see you as this caring, motherly person above all. I think that and the charity that, that you gave to the soldiers and, and everything. I mean, you gave all of yourself to try to improve the people around you. And I guess I would like a little clarity on this. And if you don't mind me just asking a couple questions, can I do that? Yes. Well, I, I would, let me say this. People have often, they have talked badly of me because of the amount of money I spent when we entered the executive mansion to renovate it. But the, the previous administrations, two of them at least, had not spent any of their budgets on the executive mansion. And when I moved in, I swear, I swear they have the same curtains in there as when John and Abigail Adams moved into the executive mansion. <laughs> It, 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 it was in shambles. My family was astounded. They said it was no better than a second-rate hotel. It had broken furniture. There was not even enough pieces of, of silver to seat people. I mean, it, 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 was, it, was in, it was a wreck. And so I used funds allocated for the president to renovate the White House. Now, I overspent my budget. I was not aware of that until Mr. Watt brought it to my attention. And then, then Mr. Lincoln, he said that it would have to come out of our salary, that he could not ask the American public to pay for it when we did not even have enough blankets for our soldiers. But I told him, Mr. Lincoln, we are poor. We cannot afford to pay for this. Fortunately, the Congress did pay for the overage. So I did it with the best of intentions. We were going to countries like France and asking them to contribute money for our war. And they would have their ambassadors and people come here to the executive mansion and they looked at this place and they said, this is what I feared they would say. Why should we give them any money when, when it's obvious that they, they are going to fail, that this, they can't even have a, a, a showcase that can't afford to take care of their own home of their president. So it had to be a showcase. Yes, it had to show the, the integrity, the solidness of the union. And then they looked at me. Well, my, my costume was my uniform. You would not send a general into battle without a uniform, now would you? Never. No, and so I represented the United States of America. So therefore, I had to dress the role. I had to have the finest clothes. And it showed that, as I said, that there was, there was security. When they gave money to us, it would go towards a cause for a country that would survive. That's why I asked the question. That's why I asked the question. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. That's what we do in this time. They're constantly updating the executive mansion that they call the White House now. And they're constantly spending large sums of money to show the world that this is a powerful nation, that we're not in the back, like starting fires with wooden sticks to cook our food, that we're civilized people and that we're powerful. And that's what it seems like. Cause the impression that that we get here from books is that you just went on a spending spree and you were out of control with with spending your money, but you were trying to create this this not I don't want to say illusion because that's not the right word, but this impression to others that we're a real country and we're a real deal. We're just not a couple bunch of people living on the sticks. Is that right? Absolutely. That we are a country that they can invest in, that their money will not be wasted. Absolutely. So that, ra that clears that up, and I thank you for that. But there is another question. I've also come to the understanding that as 
these debts were racked up and some of them were unable to be paid until, until Congress agreed to, to catch that up, which rightfully so, it sounds like. My understanding that behind the scenes that you were taking money sometimes from people that wanted to get Mr. Lincoln's ear because you were responsible for paying some of those debts that you'd bought on, on credit. Is any of that true? Or could you clarify that for me? Uh, that is one of the points I prefer not to speak about. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that alone. Where is your favorite place to shop, by the way? I do not shop much anymore now that I'm living in France and I have limited funds. I've been trying to get Congress to give me more money. So currently there is really none. I go to get some food and, and that, that is about it. I've worn black ever since my husband died. So I do not have need of a, of a vast wardrobe, and that's one of the reasons why I was selling all of my, my clothing from the years I was in the, the executive mansion. I no longer needed them. But uh, I used to go to New York City and do shopping there. That was probably my most favorite place to shop. Do you still, com do you still communicate with your family at all? I communicate with my sister, Elizabeth. I no longer communicate with Emily. I have not since she wrote that awful letter accusing us of, of her, her family's impoverishment and her husband's death. Oh, I know that Robert corresponds with her and her family. Uh, I have a, a, a nephew, a great nephew that I, I do, I also correspond with. One of the things that's, that is incredibly interesting to me about you, something that you've said, you made the statement that Mr. Lincoln would answer the door in his slippers. Mr. Lincoln came from that lifestyle, and that, that he, that wouldn't, he wouldn't have thought anything of, of that. Because when he was president of the United States? <laughs> but obviously he didn't care. <laughs> and, and that's what I mean. Because I, that is, I know, I see that, and, that's, and I think you're right. But what I think it is, is extraordinary is that he came from a place where he's out chopping wood to heat the house. And you come from this place of privilege. And when the two of you come together, my understanding is that you lived in a boarding house before you had your first child. And I find it interesting that you came from such privilege and so easily were able to, to work in the environment that he was creating, which was living with so much less than you were used to. Because that was a big transition, wasn't it? Very big transition. Although my, my one sister also lived at Globe Tavern after her wedding, it was, it was like a, a, a stopping over point, I guess you could say. So it, it did not make us very popular in that boarding house. So when little Robert was born nine months after our marriage, because there was a, a blacksmith next door that kept hammering, and uh, the people would ring the bell as they entered into the tavern. So we had a small room. It was about 14 by 8 that we lived in. And you can, you can imagine having a newborn in there with all the sounds going on, how he cried a lot because of the noise. It was hard for him to sleep in that room. We had a, a large room that everybody that stayed there ate together. And so I did not have to fix the food at that point. I had never cooked in my life <laughs> until we had our own home and Mr. Lincoln bought me a, a stove uh, and a cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> he bought you a cookbook? Was that a gentle yeah, hint? Because, uh, it, was, it was not a gentle hit. It was a very strong hint because I did not know and I readily admit I did not know how to cook. But it didn't take me long for him to enjoy the food that I made for him and uh, yes, we, we, we were known for the parties that we would host there. I had I had birthday parties for my sons that I would invite up to 50 children in for. Unheard of. But I, I love to have these parties with my children and play with them and, and, and be in place with them. I would take on one of the characters. and I so enjoy being a mother. Yeah. No, I, I, can, I can see that. That's, that's very, that comes through very clear. Did... Mr. Lincoln fight a duel on your behalf at one point? Well, being he's not here, I guess I can talk about it because someone brought it up to him in a reception line in the executive mansion and he told them 
if you want to remain my friend, you will never mention that again. <laughs> Actually, he did not fight the duel. It never came to blows. But it could have. It could very well have come to that. It was with James Shields. James Shields was the Illinois State Auditor. He was a very short little Irishman who thought very highly of himself. <laughs> Mr. Lincoln and I were both at this same, I believe it was a wedding reception. It was some type of a party. We were there. And Mr. Shields was sitting next to my friend, Julia, Miss Jane, and he got a little bit too forward with her and put his hand on hers when she did not want it. And, and so she pinned him. The look on his face was such that Mr. Lincoln burst out laughing. He thought it was hilarious, which embarrassed to no end Mr. Shields. He never forgave him for that. So that was part of what had happened before all this came to a head, I should say. And do you understand when I say that she pinned him, what that meant? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Well, all proper young women would carry a pin at their waistband so that if a gentleman became fresh with her, she would stick the pin in him to make him stop. <laughs> a sharp pin? So they actually what, poke him? Oh, yes, yes. So that is why he reacted so severely when she pinned him. It hurt. But Mr. Lincoln, as I said, thought it was funny. Well, he was, as I told you, serving as the Illinois State Auditor. And the, the state bank had failed. And so the state bonds held no worth. Well, a lot of women, widows, held these bonds as securities. And they, when they went to pay their taxes, tried to use the bonds to pay their taxes. And he would not allow it. So Mr. Lincoln accused him of causing distress to widows and to, to orphans and children because of this, that he, he brought great hardship upon them. So that was known publicly. Well, I, again, I don't know how much you know about our relationship, but there was a time that our, our engagement had been broken. We were apart. And some friends of ours tried to bring us back together, including Mr. Francis, his wife Eliza and Simeon Francis. He was the publisher of the Sangamo Journal, the newspaper there in Springfield. During some of our secret meetings, so that our family would not know that we were once again seeing each other. We were making fun of Mr. Shields, and we were using funny voices like one was a, a backwoods woman and a, a yeoman. So we were using country voices and all. And Mr. Francis overheard us. He said, my readers would love to hear this. <laughs> so Mr. Lincoln wrote it. it I believe it was a, a 1500 or was it 2500? Anyway, he wrote this lengthy letter, and in it he had reference to the spinning episode. He called Mr. Shield an idiot and some other choice words, but he signed it Rebecca for this backwoods woman. Well, of course, Mr. Shields was livid when he read this, and he demanded to know who the author was. Obviously, an author does not tell who this was written by, and he refused. Right. Well, my friend Julia Jane, the one that was pinned, she and I thought we would get in on it too. So Julia, she really didn't write. I wrote it. She laughed and encouraged me on. But we wrote some letters too and signed them Rebecca, also making fun of Mr. Shields. I regretted having done this, especially knowing that the reason that Mr. Shields was wanting to know the name of the author was so that he could call him out on a tool. Oh. And so... When these other letters went in signed Rebecca, Mr. Shields was even more upset, demanding justice. I see. Demand, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not the term. Satisfaction. He was demanding satisfaction. And so Mr. Lincoln said that you could let him know that I was the author of all the letters. He took credit or blame, I should say, for even the letters that I wrote. Honest Abe. Yes. So unbeknownst to me also, Mr. Lincoln had been practicing, anticipating that he would be called out, and he'd been practicing with a, a broadsword, a cavalry broadsword. So <laughs> They were going to fight with swords, uh, not guns? Broadswords, exactly. Yes. Okay. And it, Illinois did not allow duels. 
that was illegal. So they had to go south across the, the river down to Missouri, to Bloody Island, they called it, where they uh, fought, or were to fight, I should say. So their seconds met, and they came to terms. But while they were discussing the terms of this agreement, Mr. Shields was sitting on a log just fuming in a rage. And he was a very short man, I should tell you, very short, and probably about my height. Mr. Lincoln, meanwhile, was standing over him with a broadsword, lopping limbs off the tree way over his head, making sure he saw how long his reach would be and what a disadvantage he would be at. He was outsmarting him. He was. As I told you, he was a very intelligent man. But meanwhile, I was back in Springfield, not knowing what had happened. I stayed there at the Francis's home, figuring that the newspaper would be the first place, the rider, there was one rider that was to be there to come back to report the results, that they would be the first to know. And they were my friends. Do you know, after they came back and we found out that they had reconciled, that they had come to terms, I should say, Mr. Lincoln came to the Francis's. Do you know who held a party where Mr. Shields went? Who? He went to my brother-in-law's house, Minion and Elizabeth. They hosted him not Mr. Lincoln. I told you that my family was not really approving of Mr. Lincoln. They thought he was beneath me. Gosh. Yes. Interesting. The duel duel that almost happened. Yes. I felt so guilty that I had been one of the causes of his near death, and I clung to him. I was afraid he would not forgive me, but he obviously he did. That's amazing. Well, I am so thankful for all this time. I just have a couple quick questions for you, if I can just ask a couple more. Are you still okay on time? Yes. Okay. Um, I'd love to talk more about my, my sons. That's what I was just going to ask you. Your sons, I mean, you have this one son that you had a very complicated relationship, and then each of them, you know, some of them were very young when they passed and a little older. I would love to know each of your sons, what you remember about them. I mean, what stands out about your sons? Mm -hmm. Well, as I told you, Eddie, he did not live that long to really get to know, but he had such a tender heart. He just had a a love for animals. As I mentioned, the kitten there that he he saw in, in Lexington in my father's home, just a dear, sweet child. Willie was the intelligent one, the one where you could See the wheels turning in his head, just like Mr. Lincoln, where he didn't give the answer until he had thought it through. And that was the way Willie was. So everybody, everybody loved Willie. He was just the type that had so many friends. And then Tad, (laughs) Tad changed over the years. He was the... Well, Mr. Lincoln and I, we called them the little codgers or the little rascals, he and Willie, when they were little, because they were, they got into a lot of different mischief. Mr. Lincoln would take them down to, well, let me go back even farther before they went to work with him. One day I was trying to give Willie and Tad bath, and I had stuck Tad into the bathtub, and Willie escaped out the door, little naked body and all. And I yelled for Mr. Lincoln to to go get him, and he raced after him. But, oh, Willie had, he'd run quite a distance away from the house at that point, the little naked boy. So Mr. Lincoln picked him up and put him on his shoulder, and they were both grinning from ear to ear (laughs) as he walked back into the house with his, legs draped over each of Mr. Lincoln's shoulders, and I was, I was mortified. Oh, my, my little boy would be running around the naked, I mean the neighborhood naked. And there was another time Mr. Lincoln, he was taking the boys out. I believe he may have been taking them down to his law office, but they, it maybe would have just been for a walk because they were quite young. And I heard a baby crying And I looked out on the street, and there was one of my babies in the middle of the street. And I looked up the street, and there was Mr. Lincoln pulling the wagon that the baby had fallen out of with the other one still in it. He was reading a book. And And one of them had fallen out in the street? Yes, he didn't even realize (laughs) that he had lost his own son in the middle of the street. 
that's one of the things that I got really upset about Mr. Lincoln because he would become so engrossed in things or he would be almost in a trance at times thinking about things that everything else around him just faded. It slipped his mind that there was a baby in the street. Yes, I, I would times told him to watch the boys and and here he was sitting and 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 I nearly had to smack him up alongside the head because my little boy could have fallen into the into the fire he just uh, he he was not aware at times of what was happening around him fortunately he had a book in his hand you could just smack him in the head with that uh, well I did not but I was not very happy with him uh, the boys in the executive mansion used to get into things too one day they discovered the bell system that went into Mr. Lincoln's office that he would pull to let which person to know that one of the servants there who he needed to come into his, his office. Well, they found out up in the attic where those strings were, and they started pulling all the strings, so all the bells were gone, going off all over the executive mansion, and John Hay thought that it was haunted. So yeah, that's one of the things they did. They got into a lot of trouble for that. Then another time, they loved to go up into the attic, and they found all these calling cards that different visitors to the executive mansion had left over the years, and and they started piling them up. They even found one that Jenny Lynn, that famous opera star, when she had visited uh, President Millard Fillmore when he had been president, they mm-hmm. found that, and they, they would pile them up, and they would slide down them like they were going on a sled, riding down a heap, a snow hill. They got in trouble for that one, too. When you say calling cards, what are we talking about? Uh, calling cards, uh, you, little pieces of paper that their names would be on. So when you went to someone's house and they were not home or they told people they were not home, there was a tray in their parlor, in their um, foyer, I should say, not parlor, where you would leave your card. They called it a calling card. You had called on that person to let them know that you had been there with the intent of visiting. So they collected these. They did not throw them away, and they were stored up in the attic for all the years that people had been coming to the executive mansion. And the kids were sliding on him like it was a pile of snow. Yes. That's hilarious. Yes. That is. Yes. They had um, goats, too, Nanny and Nanko. And little Taddy, this was after Willie's passing, he would hitch them up to a chair and ride on the chair all through the halls of the executive mansion. So what about Robert? Do you have these kind of memories for Robert? Robert was not there in the executive mansion at all. But one of the memories of Robert when he was a young boy, (laughs) we had taken them to the circus and they had seen trained animals there. So he thought that he should train our dog and the neighborhood dogs to do a trick. So all the boys, they went home and they got their dogs and they, they wanted them to stand up on their back legs like the ones in the, in, the, in the show had done. So they tied ropes around their neck and threw them up over oh, a, a, a rafter, I guess you would say. Oh, rafter, okay. They, they, all right. Yes, they threw it up over the rafter and the boys were pulling on the rope to try to make the, the dogs stand on their hind feet. Well, the dogs, of course, wouldn't be nearly strangled. They were howling and, and fearful, and, and, and someone alerted Mr. Lincoln, and he ran through our yard. I had been making uh, soap um, and, and had a, a stave from and a big piece of wood. And he picked it up on his way through and went out there and started waving it and yelling at the boys. And, of course, they all scattered. That's the closest Mr. Lincoln ever, ever came to striking one of our boys. He could not tolerate anybody harming animals and dogs, but especially cats. He, he loved cats. We had many, many pets over the years. And, of course, he loved the cats the most. But dogs, he also could not stand any animal to be mistreated. God bless these children. We should all be so lucky to be so naive at, at times in our lives. You know what I mean? Yes. Two more quick questions. Who do you admire? I guess Frederick Douglass was the first one that came to my mind. Yeah, and we I talked about him. him because of how he changed his life. Like Mrs. Keckley. He yeah. had turned his life around from a, a life of slavery and subjugation 
to a man of, of knowledge and of integrity and of respect and wisdom. Even I'm though very, very even much. though Ms. Keckley said some things in her book that you didn't approve of, do you still feel that way about her? I can never forgive her. I yeah. can never, ever forgive her. No. Last question. And before I ask this, I, I just cannot, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this call. It's so much clearer to me who you are as a person, and, and, and I appreciate that so much. Now I see the kind of person you are, somebody that really cares about people, not just kids, people. Looking back at your life, if you could do one thing differently, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I would not have gone to the theater that night. <laughs> it's that simple, isn't I it? Yes, I would have. Oh, we had been warned by Mr. Lemon not to attend the theater. He said not to go. But Mr. Lincoln said that it had been in all the newspapers. It was our duty. People were expecting us to go. He had, he was exhausted and I had a headache again. I would have pled with him and said they would forgive us if we didn't come. I will do that night as long as I live. But I did not do something to prevent it. Well, I, uh, none of us know why some of these terrible things happen, but I guess we just have to make the assumption that our Creator has some purpose and that maybe we don't understand. I like to think God made a mistake this time. Mrs. Lincoln, thank you again for all this time. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap this up? I would like to say thank you for listening to me, for not doing like the other newspaper reporters have done in trying to make me out to be a, a lunatic. <laughs> I just appreciate that you've treated me with respect. And you have my respect. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, one thing we've learned for sure. If you cross Mary, she holds a grudge forever. Yet, inside her was the sweetest, unconditional love for anyone she was responsible for the care of. It didn't matter if that person was one of the slaves on her parents' plantation, a soldier wounded on the battlefield, or someone in her family. The modern diagnosis is that she was bipolar. But honestly, if all of those bad things had happened to you or me, we'd be locked in a padded room somewhere too. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you're making it possible for us to make more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.